moment he arrived in New York City from Northern Ireland, solo artist Paul McGilloway has been carving out his own signature style. Inspired by legends like ACDC's Angus Young and Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, Paul developed his own innovative sound by drawing on Page and Young's brilliant proficiency and technique. The results can be heard on his 2020 debut album, Fear of Falling Up, a collection of carefully crafted songs that feature soulful melodies and shimmering atmospheric guitars. This episode, Paul talks about growing up during the period of conflict in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles, his first band appropriately named Local Chaos, his journey to New York City, and how answering a classified ad ultimately led to sharing the stage with such greats as ZZ Top's Billy Gibbons, Moby, Glenn Tilbrook of Squeeze, and actor Jim Carrey. I'm Charles Urich, and this is Life in the Grooves. Here is my conversation with Paul McGilloway. So, hey, Paul, congratulations on the debut album. Thank you. I can only imagine that this has been quite a journey for you. Yeah. Certainly has. Uh, wow, it's a long one, um, but we're here. We we got it done, finally. And people that know you, people that have seen you play live, would say, "What what is Where this? Where the hell did that come from?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give anybody the right, you know, the right idea. But yeah, people would have seen me playing hard rock, and then they hear me, they hear something original, and it doesn't add up. But that's the beauty of your story. You've been in the United States now for about 20 years and grew up in the city of Derry in Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s at a time when there was a lot of political conflict uh, around you. What was your childhood like? My childhood was was great. I, um, I had a pretty happy enough childhood, probably until I reached school. But, um... You know, I I was born in the height of the troubles. Um, there there was that going on in the background. Yeah, for those listeners who uh, may not be familiar with the troubles, it was a political conflict. Although many people thought it was a religious conflict between mm-hmm. Protestants and Catholics, uh, the Protestants were uh, the Unionists, and the Catholics were part of the Irish Nationalists who wanted uh, Ireland to leave the UK and become a a united Ireland. Yeah. But despite all of that underlying tension, um, did you have music in your household? Then what were your parents listening to? I was totally brought up on on my parents' uh, record collections. Uh-huh. So there was a lot of Beatles, um, Stevie Wonder, Simon and Garfunkel, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. I'm told before I could walk, I, I would pull myself up on the, on the chair and dance, you know, wiggle my bum to 10cc <laughs> records like rubber bullets 
um, the Wall Street Shuffle. Some of my favorites. And ELO was another band that was very prominent. Um, Joe Walsh. My father was a huge Joe Walsh fan, so um, yeah, I was listening to all that stuff from an early age. Now, was it mostly records, or did you also listen to the radio? Uh, it was all records in the, in the early days for me. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't listen to the radio until maybe I was a teenager, and from what I remember of it, um, the the radio stations that we had played the top 40, so it was... Um, not music that I wanted to listen to. Mm-hmm. Most most of it was very pop. So I take it that they really didn't have the more progressive or what we now refer to as the uh, classic rock radio station format. Yeah, that was a big shock to me when I came from the airport when I landed in JFK. Uh, my friend Kieran came to collect me, and um, we he stuck on the radio when we were in the car driving back to Bay Ridge, and. ACDC was on the radio and I couldn't believe it, you know, that, uh, yeah, so no, America's um, paved with gold in comparison to where I grew up. I want to now turn to how you made the decision to play your chosen instrument and would like to know, what was the one thing that made you want to pick up the guitar? For some reason, there was a guitar at home. Um, I know that I know my parents purchased it. I remember, you know, my mind's eye from a child. I can I can see it with a few strings missing. But for some reason, I always knew that I owned one. Then I remember running and grabbing, looking for the, the you know, the tennis racket. In my case, it was a squash racket. And <laughs> looking to see, to play along, you know, pretend I was playing guitar. And that was to Eric Clapton, uh, the Derek and the Dominoes, Leila. And that, that was when you first remember kind of like, you know, lying on your back, kind of rolling <laughs> around the floor with a tennis racket type of thing. Um, there was a, an occasion where I remember watching MTV and seeing um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, I think it was, play guitar. And I thought, wow. But then the, the thing that really got me was we were all kind of talking about getting a band together. Mm-hmm. And I was in this group kind of thinking about doing playing bass guitar because all the guitar roles had kind of been taken. And um, my friend, Connor, who was big into guitar, he was a huge ACDC fan. And How old were you at this time? I mean, we were like 12. Maybe he was 13. Um, he was killed. Oh, um in an accident, and I found him. Um, I ran, oh. told his mom, and you know it was it was a very heavy um, period. Wow, I, I can't even imagine how traumatic that must have been for you at that age. Yeah, um, I remember standing in a neighbor's house, waiting to go up in a hearse, you know, mm. to be for the wake. Um, in Ireland, we have wakes, yeah. mm-hmm. and as he passed. In the back, in his in the coffin, I I said to myself, um, I'm going to play guitar now. Mm, wow! And that that was it. I'm definitely going to do this now. And I, it's such a strange thing because um, I I inherited a few other of his traits as well. Um, when I think about it, part of it is a little bit of a tribute to him. Yeah. That's such a heartfelt story, and what an admirable way to honor his memory. 
Now, you mentioned earlier that you had a pretty happy childhood until you reached school. Yes. Um, um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 10. Dyslexia mm. just took a, stripped away a lot of, uh, lot of confidence and uh, gave me a bit of a rough time. So I, I, I guess I had these, these feelings, like all yeah. kids, right? But mm-hmm. I had art, so I had always kind of in my mind, I, uh, I figured that I was going to be a painter or an artist to some description, but a cartoonist maybe. Uh-huh. But um, when, once, the, once the guitar came in, it was everything else took a sidestep. And that was it. That's all I ever thought about. I seen the guitar and I thought, I, I, can, I can do it with that. You know, and I'm glad I did because, you know, I could have picked something else, you know, I could have picked drugs or, you know, anything else to express myself. I, I loved guitar. So, I mean, I've, I haven't laid it down since. Yeah. And if guitar is a good friend to have. Sometimes I'm feeling, feeling down on me. I cut my soul's tired. You've been listening to my guest Paul McGilloway with Until the Sun from his debut album Fear of Falling Up. So take us back to the early years, first band, first time you played live in front of a group of people. What, what was that like? Oh, the first time we, we had a, uh, a rock band and we were called Local Chaos. Oh, what a great name. Yeah, it was great for me because... I had I had kind of been pushed out of a my the the gang that I would kind of hung out in. I kind uh-huh. of got pushed out. I'm tall now, but I, I was I remained very short till the last minute, and I wasn't tall enough to be in the in the in this gang with all the rest of these guys. So I was uh-huh. kind of like shunned. Um, but uh, thankfully, that gave me more more of a drive to play guitar and 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 because i didn't have anybody to run around with anymore i spent more time on it and when they talked about it i was actually doing it uh, mm-hmm. i had some school friends um and one guy in particular uh kieran doherty uh we, we we became like brothers and and he uh we got a band together so i was playing with all these kids that were older than me and our first our first gig, um, we went to, it was in Bunkrana, and we drove 40, 45 minutes or whatever mm-hmm. it is to get there in the back of a bread van, <laughs> um, <laughs> sitting on all the equipment, you know, it was in the middle of the winter, and I had mm-hmm. two pairs of gloves on, and was really concerned about my fingers <laughs> being able to move, um, and the night before, I had dropped my guitar off the top of my Marshall stack, and the pickups fell out, and I had to tape them back in with scotch. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so we were playing the 
the the the place we were playing was the central bar the central hotel uh-huh. and and uh Bonkrana and um yeah and we went on and i think we had we played probably for like an hour and we had like Nine ACDC songs, one Judas Priest, and one Black Sabbath, <laughs> and one original. And that was the whole set. That that, that was the whole set. Wow. Yeah, it, this was the you know the nineties, um, probably the early nineties. But um, you know we had the big amps, big hundred watt Marshall amps, and uh, you know, so we we I think that's why we got the gig was because we had the amps and the band that would <laughs> that booked the gig, um, didn't own anything, so. To, for them to be able to play, they had to invite us to bring our gear. So, what came next after that first stint with uh, Local Chaos? I just I jumped around different bands. At one stage, I was probably this is early on. I was probably pay, playing in three or four bands, um, starting to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, I was starting to be kind of you know becoming more of a hired guy, you know. So I didn't really it wasn't my band, but people would hire me as a guitar player to play mm-hmm. um and then i had a um a girlfriend at the time who was who was french and uh-huh. was was missing home she wanted to to go back to france and live and and i knew that this was an opportunity for me to to get out you know um i knew that i had to possibly to do what I really wanted to do. I, I had to leave home. I, I couldn't do it where I was. Um, and I couldn't find, I could never find a singer. I never find my Robert Plant or, you know, my Bon Scott or um, somebody who, who we, you know, who we would have been on the same wavelength. Um, so I decided, well, I'm going to have to try to sing myself, even though I was really quite reluctant about that. Um, and... I moved to France and I became a blues man, you know, and, and played Robert Johnson songs and Charlie Patton stuff and Lead Belly and all that old Delta stuff and toured around Ireland and, and France and playing, doing the solo thing, which led to a few bands in France. So yeah, that's, I started, that, that was the next level for me was probably leaving home. That is the title track from his debut album, Fear of Falling Up, and you're listening to my conversation with solo artist Paul McGilloway. You're living in France now, and Mm -hmm. you've kind of like laid the foundation for really becoming a professional musician. When did things start to open up more for you? It It wasn't until I really got to New York. I landed in New York on the 17th of August, um, 2001. Uh-huh. So just before the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And um, I did a bunch of auditions, but I was mainly a painter and decorator. I had a, I was a superintendent and I 
did you know looked after building and and had so I had a bunch of jobs. So anything you could do to survive. Uh, yeah. But how did you find your way into the music business in New York City? Um, I answered a, an advertisement I'm looking for a guitarist for a Celtic rock band. I thought I'm Irish. <laughs> I gotta get this <laughs> right up your alley. Perfect. <laughs> Even though I hadn't listened to any traditional stuff to date, you know, I was spent more time listening to an Australian rock band. But um, yeah, I got the job and, and that led to me owning that band. So the original singer left and I took over the vocals and I was the lead guitarist. So I kind of inherited this band with the drummer and, and that was when we started rolling. Uh, that was the band that led to the Arlene's house band. So you're still playing covers at this point. Yes. I, I did come to America with a repertoire of my own music, but I hadn't got a band that was playing it, performing it. I would maybe do some solo shows, but um, I learned pretty quick that if I wanted to eat, I needed to play what people wanted to hear. And the easiest and the quickest way to do that was to was cover bands and that kind of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned Arlene's Grocery, and I think for most of our listeners out there, they might think, oh, that sounds like a little local grocery store, <laughs> uh, Delicatessen. But it's actually an interesting place in New York City, um, in the East Village, correct? Yeah, um, 95 Stanton Street. So Arlene's, is, um, it was the first rock club live venue in the Lower East Side and around that area. Yeah. One of the interesting events that they would have at Arlene's Grocery is um, a rock and roll karaoke Tell me about that and how that came about. Absolutely. We, um, th- this came from our Celtic band. We, we, um, we were playing in one of the bars, one of the other bars that the owners had, which was an Irish bar uh, in the Bronx. And we were asked, you know, hey, would you, would you want to do this karaoke, live karaoke show? I imagine you had to learn a very large repertoire of material. Yeah, um, we, I think... In the first two weeks, we had two weeks before we uh, took over. I think I learned 70 songs in those two weeks. And this was material that I had never listened to. I mean, but I had to learn their material pretty quick. And that was a good badge to have, you know, to be able to, to see like, wow, could you really, can you really learn this that fast? We got a repertoire up to like maybe about 300 songs and we kind of like, kind of plateaued at that um yeah we we were billed as um arlene's world famous live rock and roll karaoke band that's such a great concept and i believe you had some very notable people on stage with you yeah i got a phone call from the manager at arlene's and she said you know with jim carrey's coming down can you learn these you know songs for him and um she had said to him she said you know well does he need a look at the at the repertoire and see what else? And and they were like, no, he knows he knows what they do. So he somehow was tuned into us. Uh-huh. It wasn't uncommon for us to to get celebrities in the audience yeah. or, you know, Oscar winners sitting at the bar buying mm-hmm. drinks and just it's incredible um, the people that will come there. But um, and Jim came down and he, he did three songs with us and. Um, yeah, it went viral. 
it's I think it's millions and millions of hits on YouTube. And what were the songs that he chose? Yeah, he he wanted us he wanted us to learn. I started a joke by the Bee Gees, <laughs> and we did that. And then we did Bullet with the Butterfly Wings, uh -huh. and then he did Creep by Radiohead. Yeah. And then I think we were voted like the third or the second best uh, cover of Radiohead's Creep <laughs> with Jim Carrey. <laughs> And, you know, Incredible. seeing Jim Carrey up close acting out the way he does was really something. It was one of our favorite nights. Yeah, and and this also led to some other guest performances with people like Billy Gibbons, uh, Glenn Tilbrook, and uh, Moby as well. Yeah. Um, the Billy Gibbons thing was, was it's like a one-off band show uh, in the Natural History Museum, and uh -huh. Billy was there. He got up and played with us. But these these are all situations that I wouldn't have dreamed about. No, they don't they don't happen where I come from. But we 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 did have some fun over the years. Um, Glenn Tilbrook was so nice and gracious, and mm. it was embarrassing because he got down in front of me and he was doing this kind of I'm not worthy thing, and then I got lower <laughs> than him on my belly, and then he jumped <laughs> off stage and lay on the on the ground in the pit. Um, you know, it was just funny, goofy stuff. You know, it's, it's um, Moby once challenged me in front of an audience to a guitar off. Amazing. <laughs> and, you know, it's just really silly stuff. Um, you can't make this stuff you can't, up. You can, nah, you can't, you can't write that, right? You can't make it up. It's just, it's too unbelievable. up with a hook first a riff is it music first is it lyrics first how do you approach songwriting it's always music first um every song has a different story as to how it came about uh, really uh, there's no formula for me so you're maybe you're fumbling around on the guitar doodling you know and and then you you, you come across something by accident almost i mean it's yours but uh, it was a, maybe a happy accident or, and you go, oh, I like that. Some of those songs like Charlie it was, a, was about four, it took about four different versions of that song for it to come to its finished piece. Um, I, at some stage with Charlie, I realized that at the very end of one of the demos I had done, I had this little kind of horn line, that little um, interesting piece. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. But at the end, I'm going to make more of it. 
you know, I'm going to repeat it as opposed to having it just happen once at the end of the song. Um, I like working in Logic. I write in Logic um, because I can go in and I can chop things up and move things around. I just don't work with the guitar and vocal. I, I, I move drums around. I, I kind of put everything together. So having all the uh, technology available to you, this gave you the ability to produce this record. Yeah, yeah. I produced it. I, I had um, someone else mix it. Uh, Michael Tudor mixed it. And he did give me some advice along the way. And I learned quite a lot from Michael. He pushed me to, to do more guitar playing. And by the f- third or fourth song, I had come on so much on my own that I didn't really need uh, a sounding board as much anymore. Somebody to bounce off ideas. It's just circumstance that I have to do everything pretty much on my own. So there you have it. Yeah, yeah um, I'm sure the. Yeah, the pandemic and everything else that was leading up to this moment just kind of forces a lot of us to uh, rethink how we approach a creative work. The album itself takes you on a journey. Thank you. I kind of describe it as kind of a mystical journey. Did you did you have that in mind when you sort of put the order of the songs together? No, or? everything kind of came, everything, every song came on its own. Uh-huh. Um like I said, there's there was a number of songs like Second Class, City Lights, mm-hmm. um, that basically happened in a flash. And the same with the guitar parts. I picked up the guitar and I tuned it and immediately started playing it. So there's those songs and then there's the ones that you work really hard at. For instance, Hiding Light went through maybe three complete changes where it started out as a very hard rock song like a led zeppelin kind of thing and (laughs) knowing full well that you were going to be channeling your inner robert plant (laughs) (laughs) if i if i could sing like robert plant then everybody would be in the led zeppelin mark too but (laughs) (laughs) you have to have one of those voices for that kind of music and so that does dictate where you what you kind of write as well Uh and Maybe that's one of the reasons why why we haven't got another ACDC out of me as well. But it, <laughs> but <laughs> it hopefully you do become yourself because you don't want to be some you know you don't want to be a second rate Angus Young or a second rate Jimmy Page or mm-hmm. anybody right. So, but all the influences are in there. Listening to the music of Paul McGilloway from his debut album, Fear of Falling Up with Second Class. 
Now, with all of the creativity and effort that went into the making of this record, it's uh, very exciting to hear that all of those early influences are definitely there. And so out of all of that process, all of that experience, you know, you really found an identity here. And um, I, I think the results are, are really terrific. I'm very pleased. And you can hear there's moments where it's a little bit like this and a little bit like that. And so it, it's it's good. It's good to be yourself. Now, your guitar of choice is a Les Paul. Were you always drawn to the Les Paul? I was originally drawn to the SG. When I first seen it on a on a poster, I thought it was a 335. So I always, because they, they, have, they have a little bit of a similar shape with the two horns. So I was running around thinking that I wanted a 335. But I got my first SG in a, in a flea market in Sanford, Florida, and I think it was $500. Wow. That same guitar would be like 4000 today. How much attention to detail do you place on creating the type of guitar sound that you're looking for? I don't know how I got this far with, with guitar tone because I didn't really, I just got the, tried to get the, the, the guitar that, I fancied and the amp that I fancied it wasn't until much later that I started obsessing over dials and controls and really like getting down to the the strings the pick you know like every little thing along the chain here's what I think the the sound that you're looking for is in your head and it's in your it's in your heart and you can find it with almost anything that you have with with any guitar uh, in a way, um, but I've honed it down to to uh, Marshall type head um, and a, a four by twelve cabinet and a Les Paul. I like the the notes to sound chalky, fat with a certain amount of clarity. There's a, there's a sweet spot I find on the amp, and that's where I want to live. Speakers are very important, and sometimes all that stuff, I think, gets in the way of, of just coming up with music. So can we expect to hear more new original material from you in the future? Um, I would like to record more. I'd like to um, do more studio work, and because I actually probably enjoy that the most. I, I can start early in the morning as soon as i get across you know jump out of bed and get straight and working and can work could work to midnight one o'clock two o'clock in the morning and realize that i didn't eat that day i'm so in the moment when i'm working uh, in the studio it's my happy place and playing gigs is, is also great yeah, it's uh, it's very exciting when um, when we all get a chance to see you perform live, and hopefully we're going to get to do that soon. It's been a real pleasure, my friend, speaking with you today. Uh, we look forward to uh, hearing more music from you, more live shows. Thank you so much, Paul, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thanks for having me, Charles. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Paul McGilloway for sharing his amazing musical journey with us. 
You can check out all of Paul's music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon Music. And be sure to subscribe to our show by visiting our website at lifeinthegrooves.com or lifeinthegroovespodcast.com. Life in the Grooves is produced by Tour de Force Entertainment Group. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to share, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Charles Urich. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.